please open up the First Thessalonians chapter 4. Our scripture reading will be verses 1 to 8 this morning. Paul writes this, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an, is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. I'll say this often, but the, uh, excuse me, don't say this often, but this uh, message is rated PG. Um, you probably, if you're a parent, you may have received a, uh, an email to that effect, but if you have young ones, it may have some terminology that may spark some discussion. Not graphic, but hey, just don't blame me. We're just going through Thessalonians. So um, one of my favorite cultural commentators, uh, John Stone Street, likes often to say this, ideas have consequences, and, and that actually echoes a, a very influential book about uh, worldview. Uh, but then he adds this, and bad ideas have victims. There is a, uh, a large-scale experiment that has been going on in our culture since the 60s and 70s uh, that has been termed popularly as the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution has a lot of ideas not all of them are bad. Some of them have to do with um, positive body image, which I think, um, you know, after the Barbie movie and everything, we understand there's some pushback against, you know, the idealized look. And I think that's healthy. But this revolution also had some uh, bad ideas, and here's a few of them. One of them, no one has the right to tell you what to do with your sexual life. All norms are repressive and should be flouted. Another one. Sex is an expression of your individuality. Nothing more, nothing less. Marriage, procreation, have nothing to do with it. In other words, they are completely divorced. These are not in any way related. Three, it's all good. It's all normal. Opens the doors to open marriages, polyamory, you, you name it. It's all good, all normal. Fourth, literature, art, film, and other forms of media are free to depict diverse sexual experiences and orientations with no limits. And uh, it's related, pornography is harmless. Now, if you ever doubt whether an idea is good or bad, sometimes all you have to do is look at the fallout of it. In, uh, not, not too long ago, an article by Abby Wright in The Guardian, which is not by any means a conservative publication, interviewed 10,000 young people ages 6 through 22 and then wrote this article on some of the responses. And here is what they are finding out about how this revolution has affected 
the youngest among us. Children as young as six are being exposed to pornography, and ages nine through 11 frequently so. They also found that there was a generation that got their ideas of what a healthy relationship looks like in this area. They got their ideas from this from fictional characters in degrading situations. And so they see it and they act it out. And often you would say this is, this is consensual, but it is pushing the boundaries and often people feel very violated. We have a hookup culture that leaves people, and this is the words of the people they were um, interviewing, feeling empty and used. We also see an epidemic of gender dysphoria driven by social contagion. It's no accident that the groups that have the greatest increase and sometimes entire friend groups all of a sudden coming out with gender dysphoria um, are those who are consuming the most social media, especially preteen and teen girls. And since these ideas took hold, single-parent families since the, 70, since the 1970s have tripled. And during that time, over 64 million preborn lives have been snuffed out. Now, if you just look at these statistics and you say, okay, this is the fruit of a decade-long experiment. Are these good ideas or are they bad ideas? Now, this is the fruit of bad ideas. And I want you to notice that these are victims. These are victims of bad ideas, mind you. We've seen what doesn't work. We've seen how this plays itself out. And so the question is, are there some better ideas? I would say there are some better ideas and they're very old. Last week, Charlie set the stage for uh, a milestone that we've hit in our study of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 3 kind of ends kind of a preparatory time where Paul addresses a whole bunch of things, defends his ministry, praises the Lord for them. But chapter 4 marks a turn to very, very practical issues. And here's what they are, just a preview of what's coming in the next couple of weeks. He is going to address sex, work, death, than how we should hope in the Lord. So Paul has mentioned that he wants to fill in some of the gaps in what he left. Remember, he had to leave very, very suddenly. And so this is the first thing that he is going to address. So why would he lead off with this topic? I'm going to put a quote on here from one of the philosophers of the day that demonstrates that we don't have the corner on bad ideas. Demosthenes writes, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. You see, our world is not the only world that has bad ideas. But Paul's a spiritual physician. He's a doctor. He's going to say, okay, what situation are they in? What do we do? What do I fix first? And that is kind of a spiritual triage. And he says, I'm going to start with what is most urgent for this church. And so he's going to deal with it. Now, I want to diffuse the idea that Paul is a prude. He's not, by the way. He has very, very healthy views on what um, this area of our lives should be. Uh, He is a defender of good ideas, and he is a poser of bad ones. For example, in Ephesus, they had false teachers who forbade marriage. And he says, no, absolutely not. Receive it with thanks. 
You can read about that in 1 Timothy 4. Um, another place in Corinth, which was a city that he was in right afterwards that he was in uh, Thessalonica, had this idea that a holy marriage is a sexless one and that sex can be used as a bargaining chip. And he says, absolutely not. Husbands and wives should care for one another, submit to each other, and regularly express their union. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so today we're going to look at three good ideas about purity. And I'm not saying good in as an idea of like, well, that's a good idea. You can ignore it. These are not suggestions. These are good in essence. These are good ideas from God that if we will govern our lives by it, then good things rather than bad things will come out of it. The first idea is this idea that purity protects the community. You see, in verse 6, and we're going to kind of like zoom, on, zoom in on this, when Timothy came and he gave this report to Paul, uh, something caught Paul's attention. And we're going to see it in the phrase, in verse 6, this matter. Now, this clues us in that something very specific was going on. And when Timothy came and said, hey, Paul, here's what's going on, this caught Paul's attention, this matter. And so even though we kind of have to reconstruct what this matter is, I think we can do that because here's what we know. He says, number one, that whatever this matter was, it was a transgression. Now, there are a lot of words for sin in the Bible, but one of them, and one of the most descriptive ones, is transgression, which means a line has been crossed. A boundary that shouldn't be crossed has been crossed. And second of all, it says that no one transgress, cross a line, and wrong his brother in this matter. A wrong. Now, this is a business term. It could be translated cheat or defraud. So let's see here. We have a sexual matter where a brother goes in where he does not belong and he cheats or takes something that is not his. So most likely we're talking about, what does that sound like? Something like adultery or perhaps somebody going into a household and, and taking somebody in that household. And, and Paul says that hurt this household. Not only that, it hurt the whole ecclesia, the whole church. So Paul has to go there because the assembly had been hurt. Now, how he goes there is by taking a running start. Now, when he starts talking about this, they probably know where Paul is headed, but it's kind of like that child's game where you play, like, warmer, colder. You know, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. Nope, nope, getting colder. Oh, you're hot. So they knew that he was getting close to something, and, and here's how he does it. Let's just, we're going we're gonna to follow his path, and then we'll open up just a little bit. So first of all, in verse 3, he is going to say that this is the will of God. So the will of God is very, very broad right? The will of God, it's a big category, what pleases God. He says, but the will of God is our holiness or our sanctification. Then he's going to dial it in just a little bit more. He says a major aspect of holiness or sanctification is avoiding sexual immorality. We see that also in verse 3. In verses 4 and 5, he tells us what avoiding sexual immorality looks like. It means controlling our own bodies, and then in verse 6, he gets to that point where it's like red hot for this community. They're like, uh-oh, here he is, he's there. Immorality hurts the community because you are trespassing. You're going where you shouldn't go, and you're cheating. You're taking something that you shouldn't cheat. And finally, he wraps it up by saying that Jesus 
knows all these things and that he will side with the people who are wronged. So we see how, how you know, starts really broad and then it gets pretty specific. So let's just talk about each of those briefly. So the will of God is our holiness. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, holy is one of those words that for me, it's kind of like the word glory. It's all throughout scripture. It's everywhere. But I have to keep redefining it in my mind because I just lose, you know, lose its definition. And as I say the word holy, I probably could see, you know, like 50 different thought bubbles out here that are popping up and you're filling it in with whatever you think holy might be. You might think like holy means sanctimonious or you think holy means, um, you know, stained, stained glass or you think holy is, so we have all these ideas. But let's just look at this, this idea of holy. I found it kind of interesting that holiness is not just a, a Christian idea and it's not just a Jewish idea. No matter where you go through ancient literature, wherever you find the word holy, whether that's Roman literature or Greek literature or whatever, holiness is defined as this, okay? Personal dedication, personal dedication, okay, so, or even for an object, something is set apart, dedicated to a purpose, okay, personal dedication to the interests of a deity. So a holy artifact is one that is used in, say, temple rituals, a holy person would be somebody who dedicates all their time in the interest of a deity. In other words, they hang out in a temple or whatever, and, and that's what they do with all of their time. Now, of course, the deity in question could be false and could be horrible. The ritual in question could be beautiful and meaningful, or it could be awful and appalling. But, but that is what holiness is. It is personal dedication to a deity. Now, God's not content for us to leave our holiness in a temple. In fact, we have all kinds of teaching about what has happened to the temple. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and so, so holiness is not meant to be confined to the temple. And God says, I'm not going to leave you in a temple. He calls all of us to it. And so it busts out of the temple, and it busts out of the realm of ritual, and it moves out into everyday life. And uh, so, hence we have holy HVAC technicians and holy nurse practitioners and holy students, and, and it's not going to stay in the temple. Now it is something that is moral, which is a problem because we aren't holy, right? That's the problem. We're just common folk. God's answer to that is, and I'm going to give you a couple theological terms here. Some of you, most of you are familiar, but maybe it's the first time you've heard it. God's answer to that is justification. Justification, a legal term in which God the judge declares us right, declares us as holy as we will ever be. So at our point of conversion, when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, we believe in Jesus, we become as holy as we will ever be in the eyes of God. And so, in a sense, we are already with him in this holy state because we have been declared righteous. We have been justified. Now, sanctification is this other part in which we are growing ever gradually more like what we actually are. That is sanctification, and it is a process. It's being like what we are, in fact, more and more. So as we take the interests of our deity, as we are personally dedicated to the interest of our God, in other words, we please him, we begin to grow into what we already are. 
Now, we're not going to spend much time in, in chapter 4, verse 1, but I do want to put it on the screen here and draw your attention to it because we're going to see this, this, this interplay that I was just talking about. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk. Okay, and note here, and, well, first of all, how you ought to walk. So walking is a, just a common analogy for living life, right? It's like one step after another. We are out there walking in our daily life. And then how you ought to please God. Remember the interests of the deity Then he says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so there you have the progressive nature of it. So so we have that holiness actually extends to our walk, our daily living. Holiness is pleasing the God that we have to do and is something that we grow into. You, You are doing it some, but we're supposed to be doing it more and more. So walk is this common stuff of life, and here we are. It doesn't stay in the temple. It goes out. So we are supposed to be holy. That's the will of God. Second, a major aspect of holiness is avoiding sexual immorality. Verse 3 says you should abstain from it. Now, purity is not the only aspect of holiness. Okay, So holiness does not equal purity. However, from this, it actually looks like it is pretty much the whole ball of wax. But it's not. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 5 says this, 15 says this, be holy in all of your conduct. Okay, so it's not just in our sexual lives, it's in all areas. However, don't miss that it is a major part of it. Now, the word translated sexual immorality isn't limited to this matter. Okay, Paul seems to be dealing with adultery or something like that. But it's just a really general word. And it's not just in the Bibles, it's in literature all over the place. And it is a general word for basically sexual relations outside of marriage, sometimes used of prostitution, sometimes of general vice, but really any activity outside of God-prescribed boundaries. So Paul is going to say, I'm going to describe this both positively and negatively. So first of all, abstaining from sexual immorality is controlling our bodies, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. All right, I'm not going to belabor that. We get that. So to abstain means to control our body. We get that easily enough. But then he starts talking about this. We control it in holiness and in honor. Now, there are a lot of ways that we, reasons why we might control our bodies. It may mean that I have a respect for my own autonomy. Like, I just don't want to. I want to control my body. That'd be one motivation. Uh, it may be out of fear that we control our body. You remember all the scary stuff in sex ed, you know, STDs and unwanted pregnancies and all that stuff, right? Uh, so that would be one reason possibly that we would control our bodies. But our control is supposed to be of a higher order. It's supposed to be because of holiness and honor. So once again, we're at that place where I control my body because I am already in a holy place. I have been declared right before God, and I'm starting to grow into that. And also in honor. See, God honors his creation. You are a precious being in his sight. Our bodies are called vessels that hold treasure. And so we are precious in God's sight. We are dedicated to him. And so he says, honor your bodies. Don't mistreat it. 
And so we could say that control flows out of the awareness of a couple of spiritual realities. That number one, I am God's, that I am holy and I'm moving toward it, and also that my body is a thing of honor, even though it is temporary. So if you find yourself, uh, Paul goes on to say, you're not going to find a lot of encouragement if you look around. He says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. He says, the people that are just like you were before you knew God, people like that do not have this north star. So if for the Christian, the north star is, I'm going to control my body in holiness and in honor. He says, the Gentiles that don't know God. Now, now understand, he's talking to Gentiles, and he's talking to Jews that have gotten thrown out of their, their synagogues. And so he's talking to these people. He's saying, but these are Gentiles who don't know God. Okay? They were just like you before, before you knew God. Now, what kind of guidance do they have? Well, he says they're lust, left with one thing, lustful passions. The other day, my family uh, and I watched uh, the new Pixar movie, newish, uh, Elemental, which was an okay movie. We enjoyed it. But there was this one phrase that says, a main character says, why would you let anyone tell you what you can't do? All right, that's that old Disney follow your heart trope. I mean, it just comes up all the time. They've been beating it for decades. And why would, anyone, why would you let anyone tell you what you cannot do? So, so basically what we're saying here is that if you don't have the North Star of guidance, if you are not going to take God's word on this issue, what are you left with? You're left with your own passions. Now, this is not to say that everyone who doesn't, you know, follow God is a sex-crazed maniac. I'm not saying that at all. But I would say that they do follow their passion, whatever that may be. They're going to do whatever is best for them, what's going to feel right in the moment, whether that means to control yourself or not to control yourself. That's the only motivation that you can have. So, immorality. He, he gets to this point where he says, immorality hurts the community by trespassing and cheating. Okay, so, so here we are. This is what Paul's been driving at. This matter, the one in which a brother crossed the line, he transgressed, and he took something that was not his. You know, when a child says, hey, that's cheating, what are they saying? Well, you took something that was mine, right? You, you took my answer. You took my effort. You took my turn. You took my win. These words, transgress and cheat. You know, that is what happens, according to Scripture, anytime, anytime that we, we step across God's instructions. Back in verse 2, uh, Paul had mentioned that you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ, or you could say through the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so every time we step across the instruction from the authority of Jesus Christ, we lose something. We take something. In other words, we took something from somebody else. We took their honor. We derailed them from their walk of holiness. We took peace from the community. Now, at this point, we may say, well, but it was consensual. Well, then you consensually transgressed and cheated one another. You know, consensual is about the closest thing that our society can put forth as a standard. Okay, that would be a limiting factor, a, a guiding star. And, and I'm so glad that our laws, you know, have things like, you know, people with four years can't be, you know, in a positions of authority. I, I'm so glad that we have those. 
But this, as a guiding star, is, is going to fail as a standard. And the dark places of the web knows this. Already you can find essays written on the defense of child-adult relationships. And the whole, the whole thing is talking about, well, when can somebody be consensual? So if that's our only standard, then we have a problem. But if our standard is the authority of Jesus Christ, then we realize that, that we have a true North Star. Finally, Paul says that Jesus is going to see this. He is going to judge. It says the Lord Jesus himself will avenge such acts. And so as he wraps up this matter, he offers his final conclusion, which is also a powerful motivator. Notice that it is the Lord. We kind of think of God the Father as the judge, the one who's going to bring judgment. But here it says the Lord will bring judgment. And elsewhere, Jesus is defined as the judge, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This word of avenger is pretty unique, but what it tells us here is that Jesus himself will see, and Jesus himself will take the side of the person who has been wronged. And I would like to just make this point here, that number one, many of us are victims of these bad ideas. And so those who have pressed those ideas on you, they will give an account before Jesus. But also, if you have been wronged in this area, and you have become a victim, if you have been hurt, here we have the final assurance that Jesus Christ himself sees, and he will protect you, and he will take your side. So the first idea here is that purity protects the community. It keeps it from being hurt. And and I just would like to say, like, Ogletown Baptist Church, uh, we need to be this kind of place where if you have been a victim, if you have been hurt, and it comes forward, then we protect you. We move toward that problem. But also, we are a place where people have been hurt by these ideas, and it is a place where you can be forgiven, and you can start anew. And uh, that is the kind of community that we have to have. And so, the idea number two here. So first is that purity protects the community. Idea number two. Now, the longest part of the message was that part. The other two verses are very, very short, but they're very powerful. Idea number two is that you have been called for so much more. The verse reads, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So Paul's put this matter that he was speaking to to rest, but he doesn't let it drop. So remember, we were talking about the will of God. So he's going to say, he's going to be talking about the will of God here again. And this is a really simple statement, but it's very profound. You see, he's talking about their calling again. Their calling has been a source of endless joy for him and his team. Uh, Their calling has been, early in the chapter, he had been rejoicing about their work of faith and their labor of love and the steadfastness of their hope. He rejoiced that they have been called away from idols and to the living God. He rejoiced that they responded to the gospel. And so their calling is something of great joy to him. You remember a couple of weeks ago about the the dad coach Paul. He says, I want you to walk worthy so that you will get called into God's kingdom of splendor. And, And so he is rejoicing in the calling that they have. But the coach dad also says this, Don't go running toward the wrong end zone. Don't shoot at the wrong goal. Don't get disqualified by getting off the track. 
He's saying, you weren't called for impurity. In other words, that was never your goal. It's almost laughable. You know, Thessalonian Christian, why do you think God called you? You know, why, why, did, he, why did he save you? Why did the Holy Spirit move in you? For impurity. Impurity, says Paul, was never part of the game plan. But what is? Rather, our calling was in holiness. So here we are again talking about that holiness. Personal dedication. Personal dedication to the interests of this deity. But what does it mean to live in holiness? You know, if you can think of, uh, it, it gets a little abstract here. But, you know, you reach for, say, uh, an, an analogy. So to live in holiness, it's kind of like the sphere in which you live. In other words, if I am already with God in heaven, declared as holy and righteous as I ever will be, then that means that I live, even though I'm a kingdom of this earth, a citizen of earth, I am also a citizen of this heaven. So when I walk around, I'm basically I'm carrying around my bubble of living in God's holiness. I have a reality that no one has around me. Or maybe you're an artist, and, and you think about the frame of a picture, and this is in holiness, and I'm going to paint my life within that picture. Or maybe you're a builder, and you're going to say, like, holiness is the framework of my life. Whatever picture you grab there, it says that we are supposed to live in holiness. It's only when we paint within that frame, when we build within that framework, that we fulfill our true calling. In other words, it is not for impurity. It is in holiness. And the reward is immediate and eternal. You reap good things, good ideas from one of the most precious and vulnerable, vulnerable parts of our humanity. Good idea number three. Okay, so it protects our community. It, is, uh, it, it makes us live into our calling. And then good n- number three here. God guides and empowers those who honor him in their sexuality. The verse reads, Therefore, whoever regards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's going to draw everything to a pretty strong conclusion. To disregard Paul's instruction isn't just like shrugging off another op-ed. You're like, yeah, that's somebody's opinion. It is actually to disregard God's instruction. This kind of reminds me a little bit when he thanked God that how they had responded to his message. He said, you responded to it not as the words of man, but as it really is, as the words of God. So Paul's saying, listen, guys, don't shrug off this teaching. This is from God. Paul's confident, I think, because he's actually very aware of something called inspiration, that, that these, these writers of Scripture were breathed into by the Holy Spirit to write and record what God wanted us to have. And Paul is very self-conscious about that. There are times where he says, this is actually me, not the Lord, and then he'll give us an opinion on a matter. He does that in 1 Corinthians. But sometimes he's like, guys, this is the Lord. And he is saying, wow, do not ignore this. But also he is, he is standing on um, something that God's been very clear about for millennia, thou shalt not commit adultery, straight off Mount Sinai, inscribed on these tablets by the finger of God, witnessed by a million people. So Paul is standing on really good authority that this is the word of God. Now, if we disregard this guidance, if we say, yeah, not really into this, 
then we just need to be aware. We really have nowhere else to turn. But if we do regard it, we have certainty. We also have the certainty of his help. So the people you're speaking to would be used to the idea that, like, this is just the way it is. All right? You, you don't have any possibility of resisting impure desires. And, you know, we kind of can expect that ourselves. Like, we, we are in such a sex-saturated culture, aren't we? Like, you cannot go anywhere with just being bombarded. So is there the possibility of purity? I want you to notice the last six words of the verse. So these are the words of God, and then who gives his Holy Spirit to you? What an interesting way to describe God. I think he could have described God in any of his attributes, but he says, this is God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What could this mean? It means the help is on the way. It means that we are empowered. Now, this is not the first mention of the Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit was the reason they accepted the gospel in the first place in chapter 1. It's also the reason why they are able to endure affliction. It says the Holy Spirit helped you. The Holy Spirit will crop up again in chapter 5 where he says the only way that you can avoid the influence of this third person of the Trinity on your life is to quench him, to resist him. And the question that we have before us here is how on earth, literally, right? Literally, how on earth can this ragtag group of Gentiles and cast out Jews and slaves and women and men, people persecuted by their own countrymen, left orphaned by their spiritual father, how can they answer the call to holiness as they've been called three times in the passage that we're looking at today? Because there's this person, and his first name is Holy, the Holy Spirit. I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek. His his name is not Holy Spirit. That's not his first name. Any more than Jesus Christ's name is Lord Jesus Christ. Lord and Spirit point to something that is absolutely essential about their nature and their character. And so we have the Holy Spirit. So if we are supposed to frame our lives in holiness, do you know who the architect is? The Holy Spirit. He's a gift from God Notice that the verse there says, not gave the Holy Spirit to you, but gives to you. It's not just your conversion. It's a daily, ongoing thing. The Holy Spirit to you is the final words of this section, and that is no accident. Because the only way that we're going to be able to live pure today is if we have his help. He empowers us. So can we resist impure desires? Yes, because he gives us the Holy Spirit. So, you know, bad ideas, bad ideas on sex are going to continually create victims. And you may be one of them. So if you are, take heart. So number one, if you've been harmed by a brother, Jesus will avenge you. And if we are faithful to God's instruction, then this place is going to be a place in which women and children are safe and men can live in holiness and honor and can actually move toward and protect those who are vulnerable rather than creating victims. Second, 
if you've had a checkered past or you have a checkered present in terms of buying the bad ideas of the sexual revolution, first understand, you aren't an exception. This entire church, like them, is built from idolaters. People who say, I have turned to God from idols. There's not a one of us here who have not turned from there. And so we are a church of idolaters, but people who have understood that we bought a lie and we've recognized it for what it truly is. In those beautiful verses, that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven. Okay, so we're already in heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, and then notice this, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, the same Jesus that is going to avenge those who have been hurt is the one who delivers every person, every person who takes shelter in him, no matter what ideas you've ever embraced. So even those with a checkered past or present is somebody who can take shelter in Jesus. Then finally, if you're in the grip of sin, I think you just need to know that there is good news today, that you've been called to more. We've been called to more than impurity, but then God didn't leave us as orphans. Like he left us the Holy Spirit. And part of the process of becoming filled with the Holy Spirit and controlled by the Holy Spirit is starting to renew your mind. And what I'm telling you today is that we've got to start renewing our mind with some good ideas. And today we have good ideas that this place should be a place of purity and protection, that your, your body is honorable and it is called to honor, that we have a God who forgives and renews, and that uh, this can be our idea today. So let him guide you away from bad ideas and receive the Holy Spirit who's able to start to build up in your life and become an architect of this new frame of holiness. So that's both good ideas and good news. Let's pray. Father, we we really love your word. We love how it swerves right into uh, the cultural place where we find ourselves. Father, we also are so grateful for the the way that you, you take the word in that culture and you bring it into ours in such a way that gives us hope. So, Lord, I know this is a sensitive topic or because it, it touches very, very deep chords. Father, I pray today that you would forgive. I pray that you would also give hope today. I pray that if there is someone who is despaired in this area, that today they would, they would reckon on the truth that you've given them, that they would begin to be renewed. And so, Lord, thank you for your guidance today, and thank you for your empowerment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.